Good afternoon. This is Mary Tess. And I'm Erica. And welcome to Shake a Leg, where we connect dance artists with dance lovers in a fun, enlightening, lively conversation. Today is Monday, January 25th, 2021. Today on Shake a Leg, we fill our chalice with Ananya Chatterjee, who is no novice at embodying social justice, pushing back at prejudice and connecting with communities on the precipice. And if you notice, straight from our orifice, a poultice of reconciliation benefits, the edifice of Dunham's practice and historic American activists, or artifice. <laughs> you have to eyebrow going up. Went up, but you can't see that in the recording. You you outdid yourself on that one, Erica. Did I? I, love yes, <laughs> yes. I just I feel like I'm learning a new vocabulary word every time. Some I, require Googling. <laughs> like it's, it's upping my level of intellect, which is great. Part of the reason we started this to learn. Today, we are so excited to have Ananya Chatterjee with us on the show. Um, in light of today's topic, social justice and activism in dance and the arts, we wanted to bring on an expert who embodies this in her work in a number of ways. This is from the Ananya Dance Theater website. Um, quote, a professor of dance at the University of Minnesota, Chatterjee holds a doctoral degree in dance and has long worked with arts and social justice. She was awarded a Guggenheim Artist Fellowship for Choreography in 2011 a McKnight Artist Fellowship in Choreography in 2012, a Joyce Foundation Award in 2016, an Urban Bushwoman Choreographic Center Fellowship in 2018, and a Dance USA Artist Fellowship in 2019. The Minnesota Sage Awards for Dance cited her as Outstanding Dance Educator in 2015, and the Star Tribune newspaper named her Best Choreographer in 2016. And I have the lovely privilege and honor of having called her one of my teachers in the past. So welcome to the show, Ananya. Hi. Yay. I'm glad you could join us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Erica. Good to reconnect. After yeah. Years. Welcome to Shake a Leg. <laughs> we're, so, we're really excited to have you on the show. Um, and also, but thanks so much also. I know your time is super precious, so we just really appreciate it. Yeah, I'm happy to have a conversation. Great. Um, so we can just get started with the questions, if that sounds good, Erica. What do you think? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we we have done, Ananya, a little bit of research, you know, into you and your org different organizations. But, um, you know, obviously our readers, our, our listeners are going to be a little bit more unfamiliar with it. So I just want to talk a little bit about those kinds of things. So first of all, um, can you tell us about Sean Grimm? So I, I wrote this down, but if any of it's incorrect, just feel free to correct me. Um, for And I got this mirror. So for listeners, Sean Graham is a philosophy and a choreographic methodology that upholds resistance to injustice as a daily activating force. Uh, there's also, it's also the Sean Graham Institute for Performance and Social Justice and is a place to create dance, practice, train, offer classes, hold dialogues and host community events. So, yeah, Chong Gram, yeah. Chong Gram mm -hmm. is a Bengali word, which is revolution or resistance. It's mm -hmm. a whole philosophy of work. So I think it's a way to, it's a way, it's a place from which to enter dance. So it's both an emotional place, an intellectual place, and a physical place. 
Um, and I think it's about locating dance in the midst of life. So we're always dancing. The reason for that is that um, I want us to remember that we can dance for its own sake or think that, oh, dances to see how high I can jump. Um, I think that dance is always in service of. Mm -hmm. So community and that's that social justice orientation comes from centering that idea of Shangram. That's beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how do you see, I mean, this is, I know, a huge question, but how do you see dance and art moving social justice forward in the U.S. in particularly? Yeah, in particular. Um, yeah, I know. Sorry. It's a little question. <laughs> um, Not a big deal. I just think that, you know, so much of dance um, has come to be torn away from its original, from its source of, you know, originary source, um, mm -hmm. why people dance and how people dance. And I love concert dance. I love concert dance. And I think it gives a way for artists to um, take their imaginings and wrap it in different levels of design elements and uh, conjure a vision for the future that has more, you know, that is about justice. But um, there is so much that gets wrapped up in this, uh, the overall, so much dance has gotten wrapped up in overall uh, context of capitalism, uh, mm -hmm. the way in which we compete with each other to dance. I'm kind of not so hot on that because we don't need to learn to compete. Actually, we need to learn how to share space and rhythm and be be with each other that's what we don't know we've forgotten how to be with each other and i think that you know i'm amazed to see that this i believe so you think you can dance as a franchise global franchise which is mm -hmm. shocking to me like that is what we're doing with dance instead of saying hey maybe today i'm gonna get together and tell dance stories and share a dance that i do that would be a good thing um, shared a dance share as opposed to a competition, mm -hmm. and I think um, this. I, I I'm giving you the pre pre reason for why social justice first. I think <laughs> to dance uh, that we can that we will move towards artists like a certain notion of excellence of how how can I totally uh, do this beauty, this dance most with most power. I'm only doing, I'm going to do it because I'm competing with some, someone else versus I'm going to dance this dance with the maximum passion, excitement, nuance, clarity, because I am holding up so many stories. And because I am bringing, I have, I have the tremendous uh, privilege of being able to be dance on a stage. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring my community with me. Um, that orientation to dance is going to, can help us. Um, that's where I think social justice comes in, right? Because we're not, I've, and I've, you know, I've worked with um, organizer, community organizers for so long, and this is what I keep thinking. We do not, I'm not a policy expert. I don't know about how policy is made. I don't have those skills. I'm not a lawyer, but I do have the skills to invite people to conversation. I do have the skills to put my body at the center of a human experience. Um, 
and reveal the insides of my soul inside of that. And that hopefully can provoke people to ask the necessary questions. And so it provides the ground swell, right? The imagistic shift. So people's imaginations, I can fill people's imaginations with um, a different way to be. That's what I can do. And maybe all of dance can do that. That's a big thing for dance. You know, moving images of justice, moving minds, imaginations, connecting energetically with people um, at that moment. It's so powerful. So powerful. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, so we, oh yeah. So Erica had told me that I know you're located in the twin cities and that you were really close to the center of where the George Floyd protests were last year. Um, and you know, it was really exciting. Erica was telling me about the social media and your accounts and it's, you know, what was like, how did you see your dance work shift in the midst of such a prominent national stage for social activism? So when, you know, that was, so we had already stopped dancing because uh, in, at, you know, in person because of the first pandemic. George Floyd revealed mm-hmm. to us, reminded us of the second pandemic that we've been living mm-hmm. with for so long. Um, then, you know, all, you know, along Lake Street, which I'm, I'm just off of Lake Street. So all there's so much um, damage here, which was, you know, so to learn to understand why did all of this have to burn down? That was something. And then we started um, dancing at the park near my house. And, you know, what happened was that the crisis of affordable housing that had already been a crisis before, you know, became worse because so much got burned down and the police was like, nope, got to keep moving. You cannot stay here. So unhoused communities really started uh, pitching their tents in our parks because, you know, where, where are they going to go? Right. So, and this was the native community, by the way. So just imagine making a piece. Uh, we were making this piece called Dastak, means knocking. So the knockings of justice on our hearts. We were making this piece, which was about home borders, boundaries, loss, belonging. These were the main themes in the work. And then here we are dancing next to, you know, next to people, the people whose land we are on and they have no home. Like I have never felt this chilling this, yes yes the, that we were so adjacent to the reality that we were dancing um it was one of the most deeply moving experiences of my life so i feel um you know a lot of times people will say well what did what shifted as a result i the, the nature of dance is not in the nature of law i'm going to remind that i'm going to say that again it is in the nature of invoking questions offering energetic support to those who are next to us and doing the work and offering questions to those who we need to bring along everyone Mm -hmm. everyone that that necessary interweaving of people who are on different parts of the spectrum of change is part of our work i I think i got to your question did i yeah Yeah. (laughs) yes yes just hearing um, how your work was able to resonate with what was going on is um, is incredible. And I, I think that people, because of the pandemic, weren't able to experience that firsthand very much in the country. And I really hope that people can um, 
can connect with that even just a little bit emotionally and intellectually after the fact by hearing you and other people talk about it. And maybe as things open up or become available online to stream stream performances that happened before that people can experience it in a more embodied way as well. You know, Erica, I want to share just one quick story actually about that. So I start, when I started creating this piece, we were at Mansi, which is a choreographic center in Florida. Mm-hmm. We were working with uh, amazing activists from the Southern Poverty Law Center there. Cool. And one of the activists said, you cannot be creating this piece without having reference to solitary imprisonment. And I was like, oh, wow. So I started doing that research and it was so urgent. And I created a solo for myself. And then, um, you know, dancing that here on the tennis courts here, um, always getting this, you know, in the midst of people, there was so much resonance there. Um, then we did a dance film about it where we did it behind the um you know, behind the wreckage on Lake Street. So, and then, you know, seeing that was, but remembering all that had happened uh, in to lead to that wreckage and remembering, I was there, I was right there when the, you know, the people were protesting, people were, people sang and protested all the way from George Floyd Square to the Lake Street Bridge, uh, to the police precinct here. And then I saw the exact moment when it, when the police started throwing smoke bombs and it turned violent. I saw that moment. So I witnessed it. So I, that my body held that moment. Yeah. And then, um, you know, I was invited because remember when the government doing, the Trump government started doing forced sterilizations of immigrant women? Yeah. So then there was a direct action and people were like, can you come and uh, offer a dance at Lake Street, on the street itself, right? Uh-huh. And the rally was gathering and I did. And it was tiny, you know, it's a street corner, but there were some, there's a lot of, a lot of thoughtful people. And I thought it was one of the most powerful experiences. So all those are part of my cellular memory. And I hope every time when I do it on stage, all those things, you know, all those ghosts are haunting me. And I hope I can bring out that haunting to the audiences as well. So it's not just, you know, it's again, it's a place from which we dance, I think. Yeah. And and the the people that were able to witness that that little performance, that they can carry that with them and have that be part of what they are bringing to conversation and what they're bringing to their work. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, thank you. Beautiful. Um, so, what I guess my question. So I think you know now we're in a a period of extreme civil social unrest. And I was looking, you know, as we were doing research into your company and um, it looked like you got started in 2004. And I was kind of curious if there were any particular events that led you to come to this space where you had brought these groups of people together. You were like, this is what the community needs now, or, you know, um, yeah. What led to that kind of initial spark and effort? Well, uh, you know, I was trained as a quote unquote classical or traditional dancer in India. And I um, struggled very much because that was an idealized world, you know, that world mm-hmm. of um, traditional dance. And I was part of um, 
something called the radical progressives, radical humanists, sorry, radical humanist forum, which were who, who were where the artists had this long lineage from the anti-colonial struggle. So they were doing, you know, where I grew up in Bengal, that was a strong center of class left, uh, left government class struggle. So I was, I had all that. I was participating in that. And the women's groups were holding street theater at the bus stop. So there was just, I was just being torn apart. My imagination was torn apart. So I came to New York with a scholarship to study at Columbia University. And I expected, I wanted to find a contemporary dance. And I somehow had this idea that, my God, all the, I'll meet all these artists from all different parts of the world. And everyone will also, of course, want to dance together. And I want to be in the midst of them. So nothing like that happened. But I <laughs> Um, I heard Mayor Dinkins, David Dinkins, who recently passed, he was the first black mayor of New York. And he was he had been he had just become the mayor. And he said he would talk about multiculturalism. And I thought about, you know, oh, my God, meeting all these people because, you know, so many different people from so many different parts of the world. Right. Diasporic and immigrant and. Um, and recent immigrant. And um, I realized that um, what really was going to happen was happening in the dance field was that people um, from the people who were non-white let's say black and brown peoples were meant to hold on to this thing called tradition Hmm. and they were supposed to showcase their difference in particular ways so they couldn't be contemporary for sure (laughs) and they couldn't really dance with each other they all had to pass through whiteness so I had to collaborate with a white white artist someone else had to collaborate like that was the only multiculturalism possible and I'm talking you know like 90s like early 90s yeah. so that's um, that's a long time ago but still it's true that that's what it was mm-hmm. um, at any rate when I and then you know I started I really just wanted to be a dancer of contemporary issues I didn't want to be a goddamn goddess or a lovelorn woman, I wanted to dance about contemporary issues. I wanted to, you know, that's what the women's movement in India at that time was about. It was about the anti-price rise agitation. It was about literacy. It was, you know, um, as much as about the kind of rape, uh, you know, and domestic uh, domestic abuse and sexual assault and all of these things. Um, and of course, about caste and class violence, right? So, how do we dance about those current realities? So that's why I, um, I that's why I wanted to invite people, and I realized that one of the things we didn't have was conversations among different Black and Brown communities. We, there, th- th- at that time, there was just really very little of that. And we what happened? It was getting squashed when 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 leaders brought their communities together to have those kinds of conversations white people generally would stop it. But also, um, Erica, the conversation, the, the way in which the 90s multiculturalism was configured was that, okay, so I could be, I could be really, you know, great within my South Asian community and stay there. Like we were all, you know, there was space for everyone in their own groups. That was part of keeping everyone inside tradition also. Um, so in dance, at least, that, you know, that understanding of an intersectional justice agenda was definitely not happening. Mm. And I really wanted that. So that's why I that's why I started the company in the way that I did, actually. Wow. Yeah, I, I remember because I I was studying under you just yeah. a year, few years before you started your 
company. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> it was amazing. Was it really that long ago, Erica? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know, okay. it's crazy. I'm like a yeah. real grown-up now or something. <laughs> wow. Um, so another question is, do you see any, any, I guess, similarities between the time when you had started, you first started the company, and then the time that we're in now? I think the work has just gotten more intense. So now there's a lot of conversation and there's mm-hmm. a lot of work being done, but the level, you know, I feel like the thing about thing about injustice is that it's gotten so deep in our skin that we have to keep peeling back layers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this morning I was talking, you know. So let's say we've done all this work around race and gender. We haven't. We need more to do, but say we've done some preliminary work around race and gender. Um, and then we realize we have completely not looked at ability. You know, the whole dance field is about a celebration of this kind of super ability. And we think about um, disability as an accommodation, as something we need to accommodate instead of center. Mm-hmm. So, and that just keeps compounding the violence, you know. Mm-hmm. So I just feel like um, while we have done some work, what we have, I feel like we've revealed how much work we have to do yet to get to the true practice of liberation, you know, mm-hmm. and justice. So um, I feel like in some ways it's very different and in some ways it's like that. <laughs> so another um, around the company again, um, how did you initially get the, the community involved in your work? Because I feel like, you know, whenever you're starting something new, there's always a lot of excitement and invigoration. And but how did you, how did you initially do it? And how did you continue to sustain that community? Like you submersing yourself in the community. And just real quick before, I just want to tag on, um, Mary Tess and I are working with a, a, a group of dance artists to start our own nonprofit called the Isthmus Dance Collective. And we, you know, a lot of us are, are, our backgrounds are in a more Eurocentric, um, like American modern dance type of, of scene or community. And we don't want to stay in that bubble, you know, and Madison is a pretty uh, segregated place. And we are having a lot of conversations right now about how we engage different parts of the community and how we open ourselves up so that we're not such a enclosed little bubble and, and have, um, you know, it's not a, a self-fulfilling type of thing where we're just an insider's club um, and, and how we engage audience um, as well um, so that it's not that we're making dance for other dancers, but dance that really is grounded in community. And it, this isn't a dance company, but um, it's going to be an organization that supports dance companies. That's um, really wonderful because... You also have uh, you also have the great tool. The, this thing about social media can be a divider, and but it can also be used. It's how we use it, right? Um, mm-hmm. I think this the work that you will do with different communities and the audience will be crucial. Um, I did not have social media at my fingertips. I had list. I had this old thing called listservs. <laughs> you know but really it was word of mouth you know because i came here i didn't have a single grant i didn't know how to write grants at that point and i was like 
well, um, I'm going to reach out to whoever I can see. And I, I did. I reached out to a lot of black and brown um, women and femmes. And I just said, look, I know there's one thing I know how to do. I know how to train people in dance. I will train you. Will you give me some time? So we started with that exchange of time and skill. And I built it, built the company from that, really. And now the people who come are, you know, I mean, and at that point, I think the choreography was um, less complex than it is now. Because, you know, the more I see people can do, the more, and I created a whole pedagogy. That's what ha made me start creating a whole pedagogy. You know, the way I've spelled it out as Yorcha with the, mixing of the different principles of yoga, chow and risi, you know, that's all that is because I needed to invite a community to train in an aesthetic. Otherwise, you know, even when you do simple improvs or even when you do um, uh, daily, like when you do improvs in pedestrian, like let's say pedestrian movement, dig bigger trench, something simple. The great lie of, um, Western postmodern dance is that it is universal. It's actually deeply culturally located, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. We run differently when we run in our jeans and when we run, when your sari is sticking to your leg, you know, <laughs> we are still running. But, you know, when you, I, I mean, that's my experience, right? You, you yeah. run differently. You walk differently in different contexts. So um, I feel like the training of the body is crucial to locate myself in an aesthetic and mark my difference, which is why I'm also against this notion that, you know, contemporary dance is rejection of training because they're talking about it as alienation. I was like, that's just great. You can do that. <laughs> I'm interested in training my body because for me, it is a marker of my difference. I hold up my difference for you. So um, I think that I, I got to this point because I was trying to answer your question about inviting people. So, you know, I think this um, building a community through a shared practice, you know, learning to share space, rhythm, breath, catching each other's the nuances of each other's elbows, uh, catching each other's gaze from the side of your eyes becomes a way of being together. Mm hmm. And the dancing, you know, the practice of dancing has much to teach us. We, I think we forget that sometimes, you know, so mm -hmm. that's what I will offer that that's what helped me. Um, well, and it's beautiful because I think people, especially, um, uh, you know, American modern dance, contemporary Western dance forgets that it's a cultural form that's constantly being created and generated. So a dance company has its own culture, right? And that's, it's uh, reinforced in a number of ways subconsciously. Um, and when you can take it as a conscious effort to create a culture with intention, uh, then it has more meaning. Yeah. And, and being able to build that from, from foundations that have meaning to yeah. your dancers that come from, a, from diverse places yeah. um, is, is beautiful because it, it is a, a way of unifying culture, a way of unifying bodies and experience in, in many levels. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think that I, I think some of, some of my friends in conceptual Euro dance would say, well, what is this obsession with meaning? But I choose meaning. I choose, I choose that. I choose that 
because I think my dance dancing means something, not in terms of a linear narrative, but it always has weight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, some, it, it travels this world, mm-hmm. shows me how to show up in this world. So we wanted to chat briefly about your book that came out in October, right? October 2020, I think. So just for folks who aren't um, familiar, it's called Heat and Alterity in Contemporary Dance, South-South Choreographies. Um, So how do you see, I guess the first question is, who was your intended audience for this book? Everyone, but particularly... (laughs) Um, I think... I okay, so I wrote it from my years of being in the field. Mm-hmm. So it's for anyone who is in the dance field. But I feel like dance. I'm like it's so it's so old to think of dance as being this little field in the corner there. Dance and the dancing bodies are telling different disciplines about what is going on in society and through cultural production. We are sharing what is happening in terms of power relations and the power relations that you're, that are seen and unseen. Dance does all of that work. So mm-hmm. I think that I hope that other people in other fields also read it. It, it uses theoretical language um, because I think dance is a highly intellectual activity as well. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes difficult things work through different, you know, diff- complex ideas need to be worked through in complex ways. So I hope everyone reads it and talks back to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Definitely. We'll include an, um, the link also for folks to read it on our um, on our link. Um, so how, how do you see the book contributing to a, a better dance, but also a more reflective dance of where people are coming from so one of the things i um there are some uh, let's say there are three sort of primary concepts in the that i that i really want to emphasize maybe uh one is that this notion of contemporary dance again like the like the history of postmodern dance what passes as contemporary dance really is white contemporary dance because as a particular way it seems i didn't realize that but i came to understand through the as the fine print which is written in invisible ink but sometimes flashes you know through people's <laughs> comments um, you realize that um, there are conditions there are ways to be contemporary you can't actually be contemporary in your own way mm-hmm. so um, I want I want us all to connect to our lineage. So you know when I when I'm writing a grant, I have to say I do contemporary dance from a particular from the basis foundation of these Indian practices. Why does uh, let's say I mean should not all other all artists working in contemporary dance have to go through that? Shouldn't they have to say that exactly what they mean? Mm-hmm. But actually, they don't, right? Other people, for most white artists, it's understood. Um, and there's shorthand. So there's more labor that BIPOC artists are doing all the time, or artists working with BIPOC modalities are working, all, are using alternative, more language, more labor, more, you know, more. There's always this moreness that we have to subscribe to. And they're having to redefine themselves as other. Exactly. Whereas whiteness is the base and the neutral. Exactly. It's, it's re-encouraging that. 
Exactly. And that that's the work. And so there's extra work all the time. There's extra labor. The second is the South-South modality, by which I mean artists from the global South and artists from diasporic Souths here in the global mm. North. You know, there's a different way in that there's a different way in which we have to work in that we are pushing back both against this white notion of contemporary contemporaneity and against the grandstanding narratives of tradition and heritage that we have, we might be culturally located in, but don't necessarily subscribe to the larger narratives around. So we're pushing back and dismantling that as well. And we are finding, so we're pulling our, we have to create our space by a double push, not this, not that, but this, my location, you know, it's deeply culturally located, but it is not about that kind, it's a complicated relationship to what we call tradition. Mm-hmm. So there's that. And therefore, the global stage becomes one that we constantly have to reimagine that circuitry is something we have to reimagine for ourselves, you know, in conversation. And another thing is, you know, this is um, I, I refer to conversations, uh, l- many conversations that have happened in visual arts, but also performing arts. Um, and I'll refer to, you know, one that happened, um, you know, this notion, Whitney, um, sorry, um, Thelma Golden, the visual arts curator, brilliant uh, person, um, talked about this notion of post-Black and how post-Black is about expanding the notion of Blackness, mm. but is completely opposed to post-race. So we are still completely, you know, I'm, I'm not post-race, but completely post a certain notion of um let's say Indianness for myself. So that's part of that's part of that, you know, pushback, the double pushbackness mm-hmm. um, that we have to do. And then, you know, looking at the ways in which multiple artists across the world are working powerfully to reimagine that. They have the artists that I f- that I s- focus on in the book are not actually working in similar ways at all. But it's that difference, that ability to figure out or that insistence on figuring out their contemporaneity in their own way is what what organizes this field of, you know, this alterity, this alter, alter, not I would, I don't want to call it alternate, but this other contemporary dance, which is, which we choose the, this otherness is of our own choosing where we imagine, um, oh, you're doing it very differently from me, but that's great. You're still doing contemporary, and it doesn't have to look one way. Mm-hmm. Individuality is is something that I think uh, is taken for granted mm-hmm. in some ways and expected in others. Uh, and when you are pushing back against tradition, um, you can be criticized for that individuality um, from more traditionalists, and then criticized from people that value individuality for not being traditional enough or to being true traditional. And so it's a fine line that you have to to walk as a person of color that doesn't necessarily subscribe to the traditional um, aesthetics or backgrounds or ideals of that particular identity. 
Exactly. And at the same time, there is, you know, this notion of, you know, I think of, you know, the great Euro masters of conceptual dance, you know, Jerome Bell and, um, you know, all these folks who are actually so deeply individualized that they can do whatever they want. But it's so much wrapped up in race, gender, nationality. Oh, my goodness. Uh, we're, just, we're just not working. We're just not in the same boat at all. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> totally. Um, and what, so what do you hope that people will learn from reading your book? I hope they, you know, I hope a, you know, they, they join me in sort of, I feel like I'm, you know, I'm in this field of contemporary dance and I'm elbowing a little, you know, elbowing my way out and nudging a little space open. So I hope they join me in that. So Mm -hmm. the field expands you know I, I i talk about heat becomes a metaphor because when you uh, when you're working so hard to push a little here push a little there uh, make a little space here you it's so much work so your body is your heat and your sweat starts pouring but heat expands you know heat is energy it pushes things open so i hope a the field gets energized and is no longer held hostage by these ridiculous notions why, with, that we don't need. We all need to actually, we are wasting energy by that kind of crap. We need to actually work to work, all of us in the field in different ways so that we are all pushing it open and doing so with accountability and listening to each other. Um, so I hope that happens in the field. Mm-hmm. Also, people come to understand that BIPOC artists, the level of craft and thinking and workshopping and imagination and design and creativity goes into the work that BIPOC artists do. It's not random, but I feel like that expectation, that conversation about the tremendous craft that BIPOC artists are putting forward, that conversation doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? I have two quick thoughts. The the movement that you were just doing to describe heat, um, it, it. I wish people could have seen it <laughs> in this podcast form. They can't see you, but um, it reminded me you were featured in a magazine a couple of years ago, um, and I I tacked it up on the wall for my students to see. Um, oh, it, it, it showed you in a bubble, and it, it that visual of you pushing and opening that bubble up and making it a bigger bubble and maybe it intersects with another bubble and those bubbles combine to create a bigger that that image came to mind when you were doing that and then the second thing is i i heard another dance podcast talk about seeing echo and coma and um and how and this was coming from a very ballet perspective how they wished they had just seen them point their foot just once to prove that they could and it appalled me <laughs> and i immediately thought of you and how the point of foot is unnecessary and it's a cultural marker and and all of this stuff and i i just wanted to scream at the that podcaster that it that's not the point why are you watching echo and coma if you want to see pointed feet and can't you see the the complexity and the nuance and the the vigor and the hard work that has gone into making the like lifetime of skill building that went into that performance. Um, and, and just because they're not from a white contemporary perspective doesn't mean that it's any less any of those things. Valuable. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yes, yes. The tyranny of the pointed foot. My <laughs> the notion that's always in my heart. 
<laughs> I will never forget, Erica. I don't know if I think I must have told you the story that when I went to, I was in Kuala Lumpur doing an interview with someone and this wonderful dancer, um, you know, Malaysian dancer, who, you know, who studied many different dance forms. And he said to me, but ballet is the basis of all dance, right? <laughs> Wait, what? I just cannot. Yeah, I cannot. I don't know how, but you know, that's why we need to really recognize how dance has been part of building cultural superiorities and cultural mm -hmm. hierarchies. I also, um, I know we're wrapping up our conversation and I haven't talked to you in years, so I just wanted to, <laughs> yes. on a personal note, I wanted yes. to thank you because I, before you, I never would have imagined going to grad school. I didn't, I, there, <laughs> there was a conversation, you cornered me in uh, studio, uh, not studio, the classroom 301. 301. Yeah, I remember that. I remember and, that. And you said, Erica, and you were like getting down on me. You were like, you have got to focus and you've got to do better with your writing because if you don't do it, we won't have a next generation of dance writers and dance scholars and you have to do it. <laughs> and you and you could do this and you could do that. And I was like, whoa, I didn't even know. I didn't even know I could go to grad school and I went to grad school and yeah. I and so thank you for, for pushing me. And I, I won't forget that. Thank you, Erica. I'm so glad you did it because, you know, there are, every, it's not, it's also not for everyone. There are mm -hmm. some people who are really ready to go that path. So I think sometimes it's just, you know, like, like the audiences, like the question you asked me earlier, you know, it's about op just opening the door and people are so, people have so much capacity actually that they don't, sometimes realize that they have it. So you, if you open the door, they will. They will be like, okay, I'm going to make just this. Showing them the door. They, I didn't even know, like I, you know, neither of my parents, my, my stepmom finished college while I was in high school and my yeah. dad never finished college. And so it, you know, I, I assumed I was going to go to college and I came from a place of privilege with that, but I didn't even imagine anybody in my school, going, my, my family going to grad school. And so I really, Yay. yeah. Congratulations, Erica. I'm super proud of you. <laughs> that means a lot. <laughs> yes, Ananya, anything you want to plug? We, we want to hear all about, like, even your classes. I was looking at your website and you had some incredible classes um, to offer the community back in December. And I know you just started off early in January again with some of your more uh, dance-focused classes. Yeah, there's a lot of classes that are being taught at, from the Shangram Institute platform. Please look them up, but also please join us. Um, it's on the UMNTAD YouTube channel. It will be the... It's going to be a, an online book launch party. And I've invited some amazing scholars to talk about the book, not me. Um, so I can, so <laughs> we can have these resound, the conversation can reverberate in larger groups of people and we can all be in conversation. That's so important. So that is going to be on Friday, the 29th, this Friday at 2 p.m. from 2 p.m. to 3.45 and if you put your questions in the chat, we will respond to them. Wonderful. Awesome. We'll try to get the podcast out before then. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And we'll link people up to um, your, your website so that they can keep an eye out for future things. And I love, you know, one of the um, silver linings of this whole pandemic is um, people can take your class online that yeah. aren't in Minneapolis or aren't in St. Paul, actually. Um, yeah. 
that's it's just a wonderful bonus that we've expanded our ways of thinking about how we offer uh, interaction with data. Yeah. We also, there's lots of uh, Erica on the company's Facebook page. We did, a, when we couldn't premiere our work, we did a lot of dance films, which we filmed in different locations across Minnesota. So all of that is also on the company's Facebook page or the in- Instagram page. Um, so I invite you to take a look if you have a moment. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. I appreciated this conversation. Of um, course, we, we did too. <laughs> Bye bye. 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 She, I mean, I'll just, she's incredible. Like, wow. So I just, you know, when you talk to people and you're like, you are so wise, you have so much knowledge about the world. And you also are, she's just like the art, the artistry and everything she was saying about how dance can be used in, I don't know. I think, I think sometimes we, again, we have this very limited idea of what dance is and she has this huge idea. And I mean, it's true. It's like dance has always been a part of culture and like, you know, for like always. Yeah. Anyway, that was so cool. (laughs) Seriously. This whole time I'm just like, cool can we like i can't wait to meet you in person and we can talk I more know. I, it's like my heart is beating faster because i'm so excited <laughs> you know it, and yeah that she's saying i just like i'm wanting to snap and be like yes yes, yes. yeah that's not even like that's not even me i don't do that but i wanted to <laughs> I just like there's something about it that's like you know i don't i'm not an amen person but whatever that is <laughs> Yeah. And it was so, it was so what she talked about too, about having like that, having when she was talking particularly about like when they were premiering this work, I think it's the, I think I was watching an episode of it, the duck it's from her website. Let me, I don't have it pulled up, but anyway, the, they made like a couple different dance films this past summer. And when she was talking about how they filmed it, like right next to where all these people who didn't have homes were, who were like, she was talking about holding that in her cellular body and having that experience and being able to bring that forth in a performance. I was like, wow, that is powerful, you know, a, but also I never think about, I mean, I think when we perform, particularly in concert dance, we think about like, what are we bringing to this performance and how are we prepared? But I, that's her concept of having, what am I trying to say? Like her concept of bringing the whole, like your, not culture, but your like literal human experience to this larger stage, you know, a completely different level of authenticity. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. One thing too, that was kind of cool when I was doing some research, I was looking more into Sean Grumman about like the a, the technique, which I also think is super interesting about creating your own pedagogy, which we can, I definitely talk about that, but particularly I was looking at some of the events that her, her Institute is putting on and it's like self-defense, but it's also like dance as a practice. And it's, it's beautiful to see how I think just like movement in general can help us all. But also this is like truly a, it seems, I mean, I, you know, I'm not in the St. Paul, Minneapolis area, so it's hard for me to say, but like truly a community center, you know, like really like authentically. Yeah. Just, um, and then when she talked about the pedagogy too, I was like, wow, fascinating. Like, this is how I mark a, what I'm doing, but B, how do you, I think that's something that we think about too, is how do we bring people from these different backgrounds? How do we create a, a, 
I, I don't want to say cohesive look because that's not what it's about, but it, we're not a company. When it right. comes to this dance collective, we're not interested in making a dance company, but we do want people from all these different backgrounds to be able to collaborate and share their work and learn from each other and mm-hmm. investigate their own work more deeply through the lens of seeing people with different backgrounds try it on. Mm-hmm. But even as I'm thinking about like for, I don't know, I mean, I, I think I go think about this a lot is about having my own company, which I don't know, but how, how do I make, I have, you know, there's all these people who I admire as dancers and as, as artists, how do I bring them all together in a piece that I make or something? You know, I don't know. I'm just, mm-hmm. it was cool. Yeah. Really cool. You ready for dance in the news? I am ready. Bring it on. Okay, so I don't know if you saw this. Um, recently, Dance Mission Theater in San Francisco announced that they're starting a reparations program, which is pretty wow. Incredible. Yeah, it's the it's an initiative to give Black artists for use of the theater um, for performances and rehearsals and reduced rates on adult classes and studio rentals. And then they also are doing um, tuition for tuition is waived for young Black uh, dancers for their their uh, student program. Wow. It's, it's pretty That's awesome. Yeah. Um, it's spearheaded by their artistic director and executive, uh, Chrissy Kiefer. Um, and it's open to all Black dance artists, um, regardless of where they live in the country. So if Black dance artists are visiting San Francisco, they can participate in this. Mm-hmm. And the screening process is super simple and straightforward. Basically, um, they accept any person who claims um, their heritage. So you, if you say they're Black, you're black and they believe you and there's no, no questions asked. Um, and it's, um, largely inspired by the Uhuru movement, which, um, is based in some socialist and black nationalist ideologies. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if you, if you know, um, a lot of the black Panther and like a lot of those, you know, free lunch programs that are around the country now are based in some similar ideologies. So it's, Mm -hmm. uh, it goes back to some really interesting roots. Cool. That's really exciting. And didn't Erica, you, you just mentioned to me that you danced with, um, dance mission theater. Is that right? So dance mission theater in San Francisco is a space that, um, it's one of the main spaces that I performed in, cool. um, it's their theater. Um, you can rent it just as an individual artist and the rates are not terrible. Um, it's a really amazing community space. Um, it's a great place to take classes and the several of the companies that I performed with had performances there and they also have um, some showcases where you can just apply as an individual artist and put in a small piece um, to be seen. Um, cool. Yeah, so it's it's really awesome. It's a beautiful space and I'm really glad they're doing so many amazing things. Yeah, one thing, so I mean, I think it's great. Obviously, one thing that just came to mind though is um, I kind of like don't even want to mention her because she's really not worth our time to talk about, but in terms of how they're screening people, um, do you remember that Rachel, whatever her last name is, Dolly's All? Yeah, that like, yeah, we don't even need to talk about her, but I just hope that, I just, I want to assume best intentions of everyone, but also, you know, yeah, there's I mean, always people who are trying to take advantage, I feel. It's just like how our justice system is supposed to work. Right. Where it doesn't work. <laughs> um, where we 
it's innocent until proven guilty. That way we're not sending innocent, we're not punishing innocent people. So rather than like turning somebody away because they're not quote unquote black enough, they would rather err on the side of accepting somebody's blackness that is a total pretender and, you know, milking the system and being manipulative. You know, they'd rather just give that person, you know, the benefit of the doubt than question somebody that really deserves and, you know, who, who needs that resource? And mm-hmm. um, I think this is coming at an amazing time. And, you know, reparations are an idea that's been around for a long time. But San Francisco, the price of living has been insane. It's been off the charts for a long yeah. time. And, and it's maybe a little bit different now with COVID-19. Um, but still, artists in particular and and with intersectionality, Black artists, queer artists, BIPOC, BIPOC artists are be, have been driven out of the San Francisco Bay Area for a long time. Mm-hmm. So for those people in particular to have a slightly easier um, option for presenting and creating their work, um, it means a lot, especially with the the diverse history of the San Francisco um, dance uh, community. Yeah, cool. Well, that's exciting. I'm glad that that's happening. That makes me feel, you know, with everything that's happening, there's good things that are happening in the world, which is great. Yeah, and you know, because their doors are still closed for COVID, it's not going to take effect um, fully right away. Mm-hmm. There are some artists that are able to get in there for re- rehearsal use in a, a limited, limited way right now. But as things open back up with vaccinations and all that, they'll mm-hmm. put in more effect. Nice. So my dance segment in the news today, dance in the news, dance in the news segments is um, Othella Dallas, who was one of the last surviving members of the Catherine Dunham Dance Company, um, just recently passed away and she was 95 years old. Um, So she is really, really well known for teaching the Afro-Caribbean influenced Dunham dance technique in Europe well, well, well into her 90s. Um, She also had a career as a blues, jazz and R&B singer, too. So woman had many talents. Great. Love that. Um, she, like I mentioned, was one of the last surviving early members of the Catherine Dunham Dance Company, which was the nation's first self-supporting Black modern dance troupe. Um, she just died on November 28th, 2020 at a nursing home in Switzerland from lung cancer. So that's unfortunate. Um, but she lived, it seems like a very full life. She was 95 years old. So that's beautiful. Um, and just so all of you listeners are aware, so we're talking about the Dunham Technique. Um, it's a polyrhythmic form that's rooted in early Black dance that um, Catherine Dunham developed through her ethnographic research in the Caribbean in the 1930s. And we're going to be talking about her a little bit today, too, later on in the podcast. Um, but her work was extremely, extremely influential. So Alvin Ailey studied with Dunham in the 1940s, and the technique's legacy lives on institutionally at the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater in New York as well, too. Um, so Ms. Dallas also seized her own spotlight in the 1950s as a blues and R&B singer. She often sang with Duke Ellington and Nat King Cole, and she appeared at the Apollo Theater in Harlem with Sammy Davis Jr. as well. So like I said, really, f- yeah, really full life. It's like, it's really cool, you know, dancer, singer, teacher, educator. Yeah, there's the, the New York Times article about this. There's a mm-hmm. really cute a wonderful little image at the very end that talks about her, um, what did they call it? It's a, um, like, like a routine that she had at the end of her classes. Um, mm-hmm. when, when all the students would leave, she would turn on Ray Charles and just dance by herself. 
Oh, and and she did that right up until her last week's teaching in the studio. So wow. you know, just like people have different ways of of um, regularly dancing in their mm-hmm. lives that aren't mm-hmm. necessarily about performance, that aren't necessarily about training. Um, part of what makes us human and what gives us joy and what connects us with our bodies. And she she did that right up until the end. So beautiful. I hope that I continue continue to dance and teach until I'm 90. That's really the goal. Like continue moving so that you can continue moving. (laughs) Yes. Okay. One more news item here. Um, We just talked with Ananya uh, Chatterjee. And if you want to get involved um, and uh, a little bit more embodied in social justice, there's a great um, summit this week, the Embodied Social Justice Summit. And Ananya will be teaching one workshop in that on Thursday evening. Um, The sessions are free, they're available live, um, and you can sign up online for them, or you can um, see them for 48 hours after they've been recorded in that recorded format. Um, They will be offered in kind of a lifetime access um, format. You can purchase them, the full summit collection. So like the whole five day uh, series of workshops you can purchase if you wanna be able to watch them forever and ever. Nice. Um, one other thing too, that we wanted to mention about her workshop. So it's this Thursday evening, um, which is January 28th at 7 PM central time. Um, and it can be practiced across a range of abilities, which in your, in our conversation later on with Ananya, she'll talk about that a little bit too, but, um, every sequence that she's going to do in her class can be interpreted to suit the practitioner. So standing upright or seated in a wheelchair, um, this is an all levels and abilities class. Yeah. So we'll post links to that too in our show notes. Check it out if you are interested for all those dancers out there, or, you know, maybe you want to test something out and COVID is a good time to start dancing. Yeah. I mean, just get online and try some stuff, right? If something inspires you, why not? You're in your house. You can always turn off your camera. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. I'm sure your teacher would love to see you to be perfectly honest, but yes. Oh, you can always do that. The other dancers in the room, a sense of, you know, community, if you keep your camera on, but if it's going to stop you from participating or trying something, exactly. Don't stop yourself just because there's a camera there. Um, Okay, so today on Two Truths and a Lie, we're going to be talking about historic American dance activists, specifically from the 20th century. today on Two Truths and a Lie, we have historic American dance activists from the 20th century. Um, So for those of you who are listening for the first time, Two Truths and a Lie is one of our recurring segments where I tell two truths and one lie that is based on a truth. Um, So we've, in the past, we've talked about dance plagues. We talked about the Rockettes. It's been a, it's a fun segment. Um, So play along. Erica has literally no idea what is going to come out of my mouth. So, um, um, we are keeping it PG. I'm just kidding. Um, we're, I mean, we're definitely keeping it PG, G, really, ideally. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, so play along with Erica, see if you can guess. And if you guess correctly, then you have the honor of being correct. So great job. <laughs> Continue. Keep up the good work. Yay. Um One thing that I wanted to also mention is as I was doing this research for Two Truths and a Lie, um, I just wanted to mention that the women that we're going to talk about today are incredibly inspiring, hugely, hugely influential in terms of American dance, but also just 
dance in general really really influential and there's way more that we could go into in terms of their influence what they did in their lives who they connected with who they influenced um and we are really taking a tiny little salt crystal from the top of the iceberg a salt iceberg or a real iceberg a tiny little snowflake um from there and distilling that so if you are interested in what we're talking about today we're going to put some links in the show notes for you to do a little bit more research but also feel free to google them yourselves um and find out you know a little bit more about these really historic um i want i don't want to keep using the word influential but like truly really pioneers of dance So Josephine Baker was an American dancer in the 20s and 30s, and she was extremely popular in France and then eventually came back to the U.S. and was a social activist for Black women's rights here. So in France, she went on to become one of the most popular music hall entertainers. And then when she came back to the U.S. in the 1950s, she actually refused to perform in venues that wouldn't allow a racially mixed audience, even in the deeply divided, segregated South. Um, So she also, one fun fact about her is that she had a variety of exotic pets, including a leopard named Chiquita and a chimpanzee named Ethel. Nice. So that's number one. I love a chimpanzee named Ethel. That should be the the name of a band. Yeah. Number two. Um, so Catherine Dunham, who we talked about at the top of the show, um, was a dancer, choreographer, and anthropologist. And she started dancing when she was young, but her parents wanted her to become a teacher. And so she ended up attending Northwestern University, where she became one of the first African-American women to attend there. And she earned her bachelor's degree, master's, and doctoral degrees in anthropology. She also revolutionized American dance on the side. Just kidding. No, that was her, her main thing. Um, she revolutionized American dance in the 30s by going back to the roots of Black dance and rituals by transforming them into a significant artistic choreography. And she was a pioneer of the use of Black and diasporic choreography and was one of the founders of the anthropological dance movement in the U.S. All right. Number two. So next we have number three. We have Pearl Primus, who was a really influential American dancer, choreographer, and anthropologist. Um, also, if I'm saying her name wrong, Eric and I had a small discussion before this, just uh, talking about how to pronounce her name. So if I'm saying it incorrectly, please, please correct me. Um, so she was born in Trinidad and then moved to the U.S. when she was really young with her parents. Um, so before she became a professional dancer, she was really, really focused on becoming a medical doctor. So all the women that we're talking about today, really intelligent, really talented as well. <laughs> Hashtag black excellence. Hello. Yes, yes. <laughs> so as a graduate student, she realized that she wasn't going to be able to attend medical school as a black woman. So she eventually, you know, picked up a lot of odd jobs and then joined the new dance group. And she studied under modern dance pioneers like Asadada Defora and Martha Graham. So that's number three. So Erica, where is the lie? Dun, dun, dun. Okay, done. <laughs> okay, we got number one is Josephine Baker. Number mm-hmm. two is Catherine Dunham. And number three is Pearl Primus. Yeah. And um, I feel like, you know, I, I've heard of all these people. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a, such a love for Josephine Baker. Have you seen um, uh, The Triplets of Belleville? Mm-mm. Okay, so it's an animated movie and it takes place in France. And there are these three women, these triplets that have like a, uh, an act, you know, and they all play instruments and they, they dance and they sing and it's it's a whole thing and in a related act there is a reference to josephine baker doing her banana dance 
And it's the whole, the whole triplets of Belleville movie has barely anything spoken in it. There's like very little dialogue. And so it doesn't, they don't directly talk about Josephine Baker or like say who she is. And it drives me crazy that, Oh yeah. This huge reference to a huge figure in this prominent movie that so many people have seen and almost nobody that's seen that movie knows that who that is. And, and it could, it could be so offensive, but the thing is that, so Josephine Baker was an expert at taking stereotypes and turning them on their heads and shoving them back in the audience faces and making it seem so ridiculous that people had to think to themselves like, wait, what's going on? Am I really like, do I really believe that about these people? And the, the banana dance was a prime example of that. She was so clever, so mm-hmm. clever about making racial commentary. It's insane. Anyway, so Josephine Baker, I believe most of this, but I, for something about um, her coming back to the U.S. in the 1950s is striking me a little funny. Like, I think that might be where the lie is. I, I think that there's somebody else that refused to perform in front of racially um, segregated audiences. And it might have been a singer and not Josephine Baker. Like, it might have been Ella Fitzgerald or somebody. I don't know. Um, so... I, that's my guess right now. Catherine Dunham, all of you, what you said about her sounds like what I know of her. Um, she was just incredible. And she, you know, you know, black people in America have a really difficult connection to history. And, um, you know, because their history has been erased and they only know so many of their ancestors by name or by uh, story, um, and so I think what Catherine Dunham and some other anthropologists did was so needed um, emotionally and spiritually to connect people to their pathway to be mm-hmm. American and to claim America, being American in a new way, a different way, a more rounded way, um, in a more um, personalized way. I don't know. Anyway, so... That's all just kind of side note, but I believe that. Okay, so number three, Pearl Primus. Um, all I know about her is that she danced for Graham. Um, but the whole, they wanted her, she wanted to be a doctor. I totally believe that. You know, this was a period in American history where people were like, they pushed themselves so hard to achieve and to better themselves and their communities and their families. And um I just 100% believe that. I have no reason to doubt it. So yeah, I'm going to go with number one. I think that the the little lie in the fact is that she never came back to the United States. Hmm. So you you are incorrect. Ding ding ding. Uh, I'm sorry, Erica. You were you were close, but you were no cigar. Um, she actually did p- refuse to perform for segregated audiences in the U.S. In addition to that, um, so a lot of this, I think, you know, being a black woman in America, um, but also when during a trip, you know, when she was living in France, she came to the U.S. Um, with her husband at the time and they were refused service at 36 different hotels due to oh. basically discrimination. Yeah, that's like a ton of that's what that's I mean, yeah, this is just like the world that we live in that a lot of us are, you know, now coming to terms with. Um, but yeah, so she she was obviously pissed and um, she also traveled the South and gave speeches at different HBCUs. Um, 
and really worked. Don't know HBCUs are historically black colleges and universities. Yeah, and she actually worked really closely with the NAACP as well. So, um, so you are incorrect. The lie is that um, Catherine Dunham went to Northwestern. She actually went to the University of Chicago. Oh yeah. So, um, that that's the lie. Lie Mary test. Yes, I know. I was, um, purposefully tricky here because I don't really know why I just felt like being tricky. I didn't have any particular reason. You were laying the facts on in this one and yes, choose from, well, I wanted to get it right because, um, you know, there's a lot that we got wrong. <laughs> so there that is great. Um, children's book actually, uh, with really awesome illustrations about Josephine Baker. And I want it. I mean, cool. It. That, um, like, like we said earlier, you know, a lot more to learn. All these women did really incredible things that, um, in some ways, like really bridged the, the, the lines or the bridge, the bridge between dance and intelligence and like academia and putting those two together and thinking about things in a more holistic sense, really just incredible. So anyway, if you're curious, like we said before, we'll put some links in our show notes, but also, you know, feel free to do your own, your own research and tell other people also what you've learned, because that's how we will all yeah. learn and grow. And we'll link you up to some video of these amazing ladies because, oh my goodness, you have to see video of Josephine Baker. It's like right when film was starting to actually be a thing. There's some really old footage of Josephine Baker and there's some great stuff of Catherine Dunham's um, Broadway work and movie work. Um, yeah, and Pearl, Pearl Primus, you can see in some early Graham stuff as well. Cool. All right. And that's all for this time. We would love to hear from you. Do you know of a dance artist who has a unique perspective or area of expertise that you'd like to hear talk about dance with us? Or are you a non-dancer, but you're a dance lover who wants to be a co-host and ask all the questions to our interviewers? Did you get the correct answer to two truths and a lie or did you not? And you just want to tell us about it? Do, do you have any interesting stories to tell us about your dance experiences and dance escapades? Or do you just want to reach out and tell us how much you love the show and all of our weird banter? <laughs> shoot us an email um our podcast email is shakealegpodcast at gmail.com please talk about our podcast with your friends your family your colleagues word of mouth is the best way for shake a leg to grow also though please rate and review us and leave a review of our podcast on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts it helps other listeners find the show until next time shake a leg <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. Raising the roof with my hands. <laughs> um, as opposed to with my feet, I guess, with my legs. Are you laying on your back? You doing- no, I'm, I'm sitting in a chair. But I just had a good, that was actually a good idea for a potential video of us. Oh, shaking our legs. Racing, shaking, well, shaking our legs, but racing the roof with our legs also. Yes, cool. Awesome. Let's just like any kind of metaphorical thing with legs. So okay. we could leg wrestle also. Just <laughs> <laughs> leg wrestled as a kid. 